The Crux of the Matter, Episode 27, Preaching the Law. Hello and welcome to The Crux of the Matter, the show by pastors, for pastors. My name is Pastor Todd Peppercorn. And I'm Professor Scott Stigmeyer. How are you doing, Scott? I remember I'm, you. Yeah. Hey, it's been a while since we've actually spoken in person. It has been. Yeah. I've been on vacation and you've been moving and we – uh uh, for our dear listeners, we pre-recorded a couple episodes about pastors and tech uh, that we did before I was on vacation, and uh, vacation finally caught up with us, so we didn't have an episode last week. Um, and the episode for this week is gonna is gonna be at the end of this week, but that's okay because we're uh, we're back in the saddle and ready to roll. And nothing like talking about the law to get us back in the groove. <laughs> Yeah, um, how to preach the law. How to preach the law. Um, but before we get to our uh, our main topic, uh, one of the things that we we started before I was uh, off gallivanting uh, was a what are you teaching this week? Now, obviously, I've been on vacation, so I haven't been teaching, and that's really been great, Scott. I'm not going to deny it. I needed a break. Yeah. But uh, but what have you been teaching lately? Have you been doing anything since you moved? Yeah, well, I'm teaching a class of uh, nursing students at Concordia in Irvine here. I'm teaching bioethics. And so, you know, we're talking about all kinds of uh, philosophy and clinical ethical issues. And one of the issues that's been sort of um, very interesting to me that I've gone a little deeper in is uh, the topic of adopting frozen embryos, you know, okay. surplus embryos from if, if a couple has intru, in vitro fertilization and they have a bunch of embryos uh, created and they uh, don't use them all and so they freeze them. And so what do you do with these frozen embryos? And that's a, that's a big question and, and not all Christians and not all pro-life Christians agree on what should be done with these embryos. And there are some, however who say you can adopt them. And you can. There are actually, you know, adoption agencies so, uh, as a, of a sort that will help you broker this kind of an arrangement so that a woman can um, adopt a, an already fertilized egg. I mean, this is an imb- a, a human being that right. has been cryogenically frozen. And you have this human being implanted in you and you hopefully can carry them to term or carry it to term and then, and then have your child. And I discovered that the very first family that did this, I mean, the, of, this is a new technology, and the right. very first family that did this is LCMS. Hmm. Yeah, and they live out here in Southern California. Interesting. And, yeah, it is interesting. And I've been talking to them a little bit and getting some of the personal angle as to what it's How like. How long so ago this, was that? Well, okay, so this child is now a senior in high school. Okay, so we're talking 17, 18 years or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Well, I've had – in my memory, I've had one family for sure that has gone through the process of embryonic adoption. And and it is interesting because it's it's really remarkably similar to the the process of a, quote, traditional adoption. You go through an extensive interview process, but it's not only interviews in terms of home stability and financial resources and all that kind of stuff. But then you also have a you know, gargantuan battery of medical tests that the mother has to do and all and all sorts of things. And it's a it's a long process. Um, as I remember it, one of the kind of one of the chief issues with this, and you can certainly correct me if I'm wrong, is that 
in most embryonic adoptions, they actually don't implant one but multiples in in the hopes essentially that one is going to survive. Am I remembering that that right? Basically, yeah, yeah that's, that is correct. Hmm. And 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 most of them most of them don't survive the process. Right. So this is why it gets eth- where it begins to get ethically tricky. But my answer to that is: What are the options you have? Frozen human beings. Let's say these were five-year-old children, right? Frozen that were frozen in a, in a freezer somewhere, and you knew that thawing them would the process of thawing them. Some of them would not survive, and some of them would. What's your option? Just leave them right. frozen forever, right? Or or try to save a few. I, you know, so I don't know. That's that's where you right, and that and that has all sorts of greater good. Least you know, right? I mean, that has all kinds of philosophical implications yeah. as well as obviously theological. How do you serve your neighbor in this case? And add, adding sort of another – a whole other layer is the question of, OK, so if we start to promote this, is this going to – you know, at what point does this become a business and we're, and we're essentially hiring people to, uh, to, to do this and we're – and we are actually contributing to a um, – a marketability of humanity, um, yeah, you know, much like our Planned that. Parenthood mess. I don't know. I mean, well, that's all right. I don't, I mean, I don't that's not fair, but um, I don't think it's quite like that. But because the, the, here we're talking about, there are six hundred thousand frozen embryos in the United States right now. Okay, so we've got people. That we're not creating these. These are these exist, and they are in existence. And IVF is a perfectly legal and common. I think it's. I don't. I think the problem is with IVF. The problem is with is with creating all these extra embryos. But once they've been created, these are human beings um, who have dignity. And what do we do with them? (laughs) You know, what are the options? And I can't see very many. And I think that, and they don't survive the freezing. You can't leave someone frozen forever. Right. They die. So you've, it's either certain death or save some. Right. So certain, certain death where, you're, where your life has, has been literally frozen the whole time or life until death <laughs> yes. and then the resurrection. Yes. Yeah. I mean we are all going to die. Right. But you know, here, you've got frozen human beings that are going to die from the freezing process eventually. And people don't keep – the thing is, I mean it costs $400 a year to keep an embryo frozen. So people don't say, well, I'm going to just leave this embryo frozen forever right. and pay for that right. and I've got 20 of them. <clears throat> they don't do that. So what happens – as a lot of these get thawed and they just are allowed to um, expire or they are used for experimentation. Right. Um, you know, so it looks to me like um, my, the comparison I have made is, Todd, if one of your children was kidnapped, <clears throat> God forbid, and I know it's a horrible analogy to make, but if one of your children was kidnapped and they offered you and you had to pay a ransom, would you pay the ransom? You certainly, I think you would. And even though knowing that it's ethically tricky because is this now encouraging more? Yep. <laughs> yep. Right? I'm tracking with you. But wouldn't you do it anyway? I mean, wouldn't you rescue your, your child? And I, and I think of it as, as adoption. And I, you know, I mean, I think of it theologically 
as adoption, and I think of it theologically as redemption. Redemption. Um, we are being, you know, we have been bought. We have been bought with a price, and not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of right. our Lord. And um, you know, so I think the metaphor works for us theologically. Uh, I just come up against the brick wall of what are the options? You, you don't have any. There are no good options except for the possibility of saving some. And, um, you know, all adoptions, no matter what, how old the child is, all adoptions, there's exchanging of money. You bet. I mean, that, that's, that happens in every, you know, every, every adoption. Um, so right. people are paying money for a child every time they adopt a child. But and that's not different in this case. Hmm. What is different, and one or one of the things that is different is that legally, this we're using the word adoption for the frozen embryos, but legally it's not seen as an adoption. And this is uh, this is problematic. But the problem is with the law, because the law considers an embryo property, <laughs> not not a hurt human being. Wow! So legally, you really are making a purchase, right? It is a. Yeah, it, it it's a transaction. Yeah, it's, you are you're, it's a commodity, and legally, you know. So I mean, that's a trouble. That's a problem with the law. And, but anyway, so my my perspective on this, at least at present, and I've been researching this to some extent, and um, is that while it is the whole scenario has ethical problems. I mean, these embryos should not have been created in the first place in this way. They shouldn't have been frozen. They should right. But but they are. They exist. And um, our, our, I feel that it's not only ethical to adopt these embryos, but it can even be praiseworthy to adopt these embryos. And so that's what I've been teaching. That's one, mm. one of the things I've been teaching with bioethics in the last couple of weeks. How fun is that? Really yeah, interesting. I mean, as, as you're describing this, Scott, what, I, what, what popped into my head is Schindler's List. Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. You know, just you this, can save some. You know, you can't save them right. all. Right, you cannot save everybody. Mm-hmm. So, how do you do what you can to serve your neighbor? That's right. um, not in order to get something. Not, but um, right. Uh, interesting. Lots of interesting implications. Yeah, people people that are adopting embryos aren't doing this um, in order to enrich themselves. <laughs> you know, they're not. Right. You know, I mean. There's not somebody that's kind of, you know, these aren't goods that are being traded back and forth. At least that wouldn't be an ethical way to do things. But if we're talking about a family that is looking at this as adopting a child, just like it's just that the child is younger. It's, it's I think, can be very comparable to adopting a 10-year-old. Right. Um, you're, you're adopting a child into your family. You're bringing a stranger. You're bringing an orphan in. And we all know that the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testament, talk a great deal about our responsibility to orphans. And these children are not – are if anything, they're orphans. Right, right. Orphan now, one, one final thought on this is that, um, uh, again, on at least one occasion after conversation uh, with my uh, – with this family that – that was in the process of embryonic adoption and, you know, and they adopted, I want to say that it was five embryos. I could be wrong on that, but, um, but it was several. That's for sure. May have been three now that I think of it. And, um, you know, and, and, and a certain number of them died and I had a memorial service for them. That's really very interesting. And, I think yeah. that's important. That's and, and I will uh, – I'm going to make a note to myself here to put that 
to put my link to that sermon because I, with their permission, I printed the sermon out. I, I mean, it's on the web and you can find it and find the name of the couple, etc. But it, um, but it was very interesting just for that exact reason of, okay, if we treat these people as people, as human beings with flesh and blood that live, that die, that are redeemed, then this is precisely the same issue theologically mm-hmm. with what we deal with with a stillbirth. It is. And I have it most is. certainly done uh, done funerals for stillbirths and for um, miscarriages. Uh, and, and so that was – after kind of extensive conversation, that was my treatment of it. And you can be sure it was the first time that that had happened around mm-hmm. here. But I fully believe that if we as Christians are going to – Continue to confess life in the midst of a culture of death, to use your favorite Pope's language. Yeah. Then we have to confess these lives and and do what we do when somebody dies. Yeah, I think that was really pastorally very smart. I think that was the right thing to do. And and they probably did get three, not more than five, because you know you don't. I, it gets ethically problematic if you're trying to implant more than that because you want to try to pick a number that if they all take you could you don't have to then have a, a abortions yeah and, and this uh, is and this is right. sketchy in my head i think and, and and so i could be totally wrong on this scott but i think that what had happened was that that in their first attempt all of them died right that happens and right. then they and happen. then they tried again and and one lived so that that, that yeah. as I remember it was what happened, and so we kind of had this conversation and invited their family, and so it was, it was a, a, certainly not a big service, but it was a service, and it was a confession of the gospel. It was, mm-hmm. you know, this is grief, this is real grief, this is not fake mm-hmm. grief, mm-hmm. Uh, etc. So I will. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'll make a note on that. I had forgotten about that. So. Hmm. Well, we're. Uh, uh, we're 15 minutes in, and we haven't even gotten to our topic yet. <laughs> yeah, let's let's roll, man. Let's roll. We got we got stuff to do, and our uh, topic. I have a feeling this is going to be a multi-episode topic, but we'll see. Our topic that we kind of came up on was preaching the law, and yeah. this is obviously a topic that uh, much ink has been spilt on over the. What do you what do you say? M- many Bites have been bitten. I don't know quite how to say that when you're talking about uh, online writing and and preaching and teaching. That, that that so this is a topic that in some in some ways has been kind of beaten to death. Yeah. And uh, and and you could simply say, okay, let's have a a battle of bibliographies here. And here are the 27 books uh, that support this, and here are the 27 books that support that. Um, I'm not interested in that, and I'm definitely not interested in kind of engaging in any of the uh, various internet cyber wars that are around here. That's just not my thing. Um, But it is something that every pastor struggles with. Every pastor that's worth their salt struggles with. And the, the question, so how do you preach the law? What does it mean to preach the law? Why do you preach the law? Kind of what is the, um, what is the purpose of preaching the law? And then, um, can you, uh, can you use different uses of the law? Is that something that we can, that we can actually do or not do? 
Uh, what does it mean to uh, to be soft on preaching the law? What does it mean to uh, and then obviously kind of ultimately what's the relationship between the law and the gospel and the sermon? So there's there's definitely a lot of uh, a lot of room to uh, to talk. Uh, anything? Any kind of initial thoughts floating through your head, my friend? Well, I think one of the questions that comes up is, you know, of course, so we're Lutheran pastors and we're trained in the dynamic of law and gospel. Not all Christian pastors maybe even understand what we mean by those terms. But what we're talking about is the, the commands of God, which, which condemn us <laughs> and reveal our sin to us and reveal our need for a savior. And then, of course, the gospel is specifically talking about the the uh, atonement, Christ's death on the cross, paying for our sins, forgiveness of sins, justification. And so what the controversy is, is when you preach long gospel, is there is there a place for preaching the law in a an exhortatory manner? You know, I mean, what is the role of the law in the life of the Christian? Um, you know, on the one hand, we always need to be accused of our sin. We always need to have our need for a savior made known to us. Um, and you can't really preach the gospel effectively without the law being there. But is there more? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's all, you know, is there some role the law has in the life of the Christian beyond condemning us? Um, the law always condemns, but is it only condemn? I mean, that's one gotcha. of the rules. Well, uh, yeah. let's, let, so let's take this. Not law and gospel in abstraction, okay? Okay. Um, but but think on think about Sunday morning. You are uh, you're preaching at your congregation, and you're writing a and you're writing a sermon, and and you're going to write. Uh, you're going to have your sermon presumably is going to have law and gospel. What is your what is your goal? as a preacher in preaching the law why do you preach the law there in that place to that in that context and we're not talking about mars hill we're not talking about um i'll say evangelistic preaching to unbelievers although i'm confident that there are unbelievers in you know just about any context of of a gathering of christians there are going to be some that do not believe but Nevertheless, when you're preaching to your flock, to your people, why do you preach the law there? And what does it mean to preach the law there to the baptized? Maybe that's a that that's kind of how I've been percolating on this question. Yeah. No, I mean, I think part of what we do when we preach is we're I, I you know, I really do think that part of what we're to do is to present to people what it is to be the baptized, right? You know, that we are the baptized. Now, I mean, you know, so baptism is important in, in our preaching. And even if you don't mention baptism by name, you know, use the word baptism, right. you should be preaching baptism. Uh, you should be preaching identity, you know, who people are. And, and that will include describing what it is to be a baptized child of God. Does that mean I'm saying that your outline should be law, gospel, law? No, I, I don't. I don't think I'm saying that. I, I am just saying that when you're preaching the law, that it doesn't always just have to be finger pointing. There is some aspect to the law of which 
here is what the, you know, I think we can say, here is what it is to be a Christian. And, and it sure. means certain things. It means specific things. And, you know, ultimately the goal of preaching, I think, and this is how at least I always preach. And, you know, tell me if you do differently, but I always think that the goal of preaching is to absolve people. I, that I'm there to pronounce forgiveness, actually pronounce the forgiveness of sins to them in the sermon. That this is every this is, sermon is an absolution. At every some point. sermon is an absolution, and that doesn't mean I then add penance onto it, right? Um, you know, but there, but there might be in the course of preaching the law. It doesn't always just have to be you're going to go to hell. It can also be said in such a way that it's like here is what having been redeemed what life is, what your new life is. And you'll fall short of this, and this is why we want to make sure the gospel predominates and that that is the ultimate goal of the sermon is, is Christ crucified. Well, as, as I think of it, you know, Lutherans, Lutherans are fairly dense in my experience, and, uh, and that, is, that is never more true than when you're talking about Lutheran pastors. <laughs> and, and we have a tendency, I think, to want to... Uh, nuance our preaching and and to and to make our preaching you know poetry and and I'm not saying this in a, in a way to den- to excuse me to denigrate poetry but we want our we want our preaching or or maybe I'm just speaking of myself I want my preaching to be this kind of flowery amazing prose and 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 so the problem becomes all right so when i when i have a text and i'm looking at this text the whole text not you know not part of it how do i go about determining what i'm going to say <laughs> really, it's just that simple and 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 recognizing that all of it is the word of god and that this is revealing the perfect will of god to to us, and that it is my job as the preacher to deliver that to my people. Now, as as I think about this question, I think I think that a part of what happens is is a matter of context, and that our understanding of the context of preaching changes the goal of preaching and how we preach. And and this is what I mean. When I'm preaching Sunday morning, I am always preaching toward the Eucharist. That is the, if you will, that is that is the goal of the sermon, mm-hmm. is to preach toward the Eucharist. We have the Eucharist every Sunday at every service. I'm very thankful and blessed to have a congregation that has this practice. So... Anytime I'm preaching Sunday morning, it's going to end with our Lord giving giving himself to us in his body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. And so I cannot, in my mind, I cannot preach without that being, you know, without thinking of this essentially as a dinner table com- conversation of, okay, mm-hmm. we are going to hear hear what God's word speaks to us today. In the context of we are literally just about to sit down to receive him and his body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. Yeah. And that changes the context uh, for me dramatically because the, the Eucharist is the gospel and fleshed. And so 
I don't know. Maybe and maybe I'm crazy on this. I may be talking myself into heresy here. So you got to pull me back if uh, if I need it. Um, but in that regard, understanding the Eucharist as the as kind of the 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 final the the telos of the sermon, it is impossible to end a sermon with law because. The Eucharist is the gospel. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a I, – I, I mean that's a very good way to look at things. Now, I, I don't think – I don't think you're saying that um, in your actual oratory that you um, don't speak about the, our justification, you know, because we're going to – you know, Right. You, because that's always there. That's already done. So I can check that off of my list. No, I don't have obviously. to talk about it. And because I think we do, but but I hear what you're saying, Todd. I, I do absolutely hear what you're saying. I mean, the final word is always going to be that is always going to be the self giving of God in the in the supper. That's the final word. Yeah, and, and everything is leading up to that, including and especially the sermon. I think that's what I. You know, we talk about there being two peaks in the service, but you know, this is a peak that points to the second peak. Right. And right. I, I like that. I I, I like that. Now. How do you apply that? I mean, does that mean that you um, include exhortation in your sermon? Um, I, I'm fine with that. I absolutely am fine with that. I don't see the problem. You know, where I would see a problem would be if we preach. See, I'm not one for saying let's count how many words of law and right. how many words of gospel yeah, it's and not that balance simple. it in the scale. I don't think so at all. I think you could preach, you know, for 20 minutes and put in one sentence of law and it'd be devastating. Or you could put in one, you could preach all law in one sentence of gospel and it'd be rejuvenating depending on, it all depends on the context and on what you say, you know, and, um, and what the text is and what the hymns are doing and what, you know, but ultimately I guess it puts us in, not entirely, but it kind of gives us a little bit of relief to know. I mean, it lets us off the hook to know that, Look, we're we're preaching toward the Eucharist. That's a very good insight, Todd. Hmm. Now, I um, uh, I'll talk about this in a little bit, a little uh, in a little bit different way. But I I just uh, one of the myriad of things that we did on my uh, on my vacation was that my two older daughters and I went to the Higher Things Today and Youth Conference in Las Vegas. Um, and and so we had fourteen services in four days. Which is kind of a, you know, that's sort of intense. Mm -hmm. Of those services, eleven of them, I think eleven. Let me think. Uh, opening service and closing service were both a divine service, and then we had um, evening prayer each day, which uh, did not have a sermon. So we had uh, we basically had two sermons a day. Okay, so I think I heard seven or eight sermons over the span of four days, but. Most of the sermons were not in the con in the direct context of the Eucharist. Most of them were in the context of matins or vespers, okay, morning, evening prayer. And it was interesting to me in listening to these sermons that for for these Lutheran preachers, in some regard, you are uh, you're kind of taking them out of their normal context. Because you're preaching to, first of all, you're preaching to 450 kids in a, you know, in an auditorium that's been converted into a church, and and nobody does that better than higher things, that's for sure. But but then you're preaching at a prayer office, and this was kind of, as I remember it, Scott, this was one of Luther's rather unique 
insights into the daily offices was that uh, Matins and Vespers should have preaching. Mm-hmm. And that, as I remember it at least, and I am perfectly comfortable being wrong on this. And if I am wrong, you may email us at and find us at thecruxofthematter.net slash podcast slash 27. And you can uh, leave a comment or send us an email at feedback at thecruxofthematter.net. Anyway, if I am, if I'm wrong, that's certainly fine. Send it to me. Let me have it. But, um, as I remember, and, and after reading many of Luther's sermons, his, his sermons at those, at those offices, especially like his Sunday afternoon sermons or, you know, these sermons that are on the epistles, particularly, they are much more, um, expository, didactic, and even exhortatory than his Sunday morning ones. Now, his Sunday morning ones are definitely more, uh, I will say, sharp than what we're used to. But uh, but that those sermons tend to be a little more descriptive and expository. Um, and, and of course, for most, for most parishioners, most people, uh, if they hear one sermon a week, that's, that's a lot. They're, they're, you know, they're almost never going to hear more than one sermon a week. So that uh, that context is, I, I was fascinated by, it. and and including myself, I preached at one of those services, and in looking back at my sermon, it was it it had a lot of of baptismal inner uh, baptismal imagery, a lot of identity conversation. There was zero Eucharist in it, at least mm-hmm. overtly, and that is kind of unusual for me. So I find that uh, I find that context very interesting there. Yeah, I mean, most of our churches don't have daily matins or, like, say, on a Sunday morning, have like a matins at seven a.m. and then the divine service at eight thirty or something like that. You know, I've right. seen that done, right? But that's not that's not normal and um, or not common. And so, you know, the the distinction between how you preach in a preaching office and how you preach in the Eucharist gets lost on us. We don't have monastic life amongst us, really. Right. Um, so a lot of our preachers, a lot of our Lutheran preachers, you know, when, it may not be a Eucharistic service, but their only preaching is still Sunday morning. Right. And, right. Um, you know, so it's that's tough. I'm I'm with you. I mean, for the last, uh, I think, 15 years, I've been involved in churches either as a member or as the pastor that have had Eucharist at every divine at every service on every right. Sunday. And um, I uh, I couldn't see myself going away from that, you know, changing now. But, um, but many of our church, many of our good pastors, faithful pastors are not in congregations that have weekly Eucharist or every, every service Eucharist. And, uh, so they are preaching matin services or they're preaching a d- divine service, a lopped off version of it. Right. The dry and, mass uh, as we might The dry it. mass. Exactly. And, uh, and so, you know, I mean, in, in a way that's kind of an unusual or, uh, shall I say, unnatural sort of thing. I mean, I think preaching and Eucharist go together very yeah. well. And and when you have, I, I'm, I mean, I, I'm, I agree with you in your, what you were saying about Luther. And I agree with that. I think if we had like a higher thing, if our parish life was like a higher things conference where you had daily services and then you had your Sunday Eucharist, I could see the daily services or the midweek service, you know, like right. I, and I always did this sure. in my Advent, Advent and right. Lent, Lent services, right. et cetera. I, I always intentionally made those more instructional yep. and catechetical, if yep, you want. Yep, me too. And um, sometimes actually using the catechism, but sometimes it would be some other topic or something. Sure. But I would, but but they would be intended to be more instructional. 
And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, but that didn't, that doesn't mean that, that I didn't still see my job in, at the final analysis in the pulpit was to absolve people. Right. So I still did, but it does, you know, the context, like you were saying matters and preaching toward the Eucharist does make it different. Um, it does, it does in a way make it different. You know, baptism, we start where, you know, the foundation is there, our identity talk is there, and then the life of the baptized, uh, which culminates in the supper. Um, mm. now, and, but, but, you know, it flows from that too. So, I mean, there, there, there's a role for, what do you think is the role for exhortation? <clears throat> I think, I think that as a, as a preacher, we tend to um, we tend to think of the law as as something that I can manipulate in my preaching. That that when I preach the law, I am going to preach, you know, our classic first use, second use, third use stuff. And so when I do exhortation, uh, I'm meaning that as third use. You know, this is this is a descriptive of the life of the believer. This is kind of the uh, the therefore in Paul's language of, all right. So now, be who you are. Live as mm-hmm. as free children of God, etc. Um, however, uh, it is it is not my law. It's God's law, and uh, and what my intention and how the hearer hears the sermon are may very well not be the same thing at all. And right, that I right. think is the challenge is that, okay, so if I do a, in my mind, sort of second, second use accusatory mirror part of the, part of the law, which is going to have lots of repentance, lots of, you know, your guilty language, et cetera. And then I may have another section that is, that is going to be more descriptive of the life of the believer, more, now, as a Christian, this is how you are to behave. I may, in my mind, be intending one thing for that, and the Holy Spirit may use that in a totally different way. Yeah. Be- and, 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 and this should not surprise us. When I hear um, or read Paul's, Paul's uh, descriptions of, of the life of the Christian— that kind of accuses me, Scott. Yeah, I feel pretty condemned by that. Yeah, and so, and it doesn't matter if that if that happens at the beginning, the middle, or the end of the sermon. The law always accuses. Lex semper accusat. I do not have the ability. It is not my job as the preacher to to sort of manipulate the law to use it as I see fit. I, I would argue that my my responsibility as the preacher is to preach what the Word of God actually says, and to deliver that. And um, and and having said that, though Scott, I think it is nigh unto impossible for a preacher not to be thinking about what he wants his hearers to do as yeah. a result of this. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually think that's probably a good approach. You should have something in mind as to what you think they should right. do. <laughs> that's kind of done in some respects. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, and and so when we talk about preaching preaching the law, I think that uh, that question of what is my kind of what is the telos, what is mm-hmm. the telos of this preaching of the law, what do I want as a preacher for them to do? At the, at the end of it, do I want them to repent? 
Do I want them to go and do some do you know to live live a life that is befitting their baptism? Um, do I do I want them to say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Um, do I want them to uh, to be condemned? Um, how how I think about that and how I approach that in my preaching is going to shape how I preach the gospel. I would I would argue. Hmm. Yeah, lots of yeah, lots more does. stuff we can think on with this. I'm sure. Yeah. Um. Maybe. Uh, let's let's do a couple of these quick questions. I I asked uh, yesterday on Facebook uh, if anyone had anything that uh, that they wanted us to talk about and. Not surprisingly, there's a lot of silliness, but there. But in the middle of all of the silliness, there were a couple questions that I that I th- that I thought were of particular interest to us. Uh, one of them was uh, from Robin. Robin asks, "Do you think Lutheran pastors preach enough law, or are messages too heavy on the grace side, or a good balance?" What that's do you a, think? That's a, that is an interesting question. Yeah, I have a hard time answering questions like that because. It has a lot to do with the particular con- the congregation, and I'm as a pastor, I know my flock, right? I mean, you know your flock, right? Right. And I'm not your pa- I'm not the pastor there, so I don't know the flock. I don't know their names. So whether or not you're preaching too much grace or not enough law, or you know, I don't want to say too much grace, but, but you know, whether you're whether you should preach more law or not isn't really easy for me to judge. I don't really know. Um, you know your people. They may need, you know, your congregation in a particular time might need a little bit of a kick in the in the pants. And um, uh, but there are other times where congregations are just weary. You know, they're just worn, right. and and you know they've been beaten up by the world and by their consciences, and they need to just be washed. You know, and comfort. So yeah, they need to be comforted. So coming in from the outside, I don't really know if our pastors are preaching too much law or not enough law. I I mean, you know, obviously there are the lines that you don't want to draw. I mean, you don't want to ever have a a gospel-less sermon. I wouldn't preach a gospel-less sermon, certainly, you know, not very often. (laughs) And um, so I don't know. I mean, it's a tough question. But in the same way, I would argue you wouldn't want to have a lawless sermon either. I don't think so. I mean, don't, I mean, I can think, we can think of scenarios, right? I could think of a scenario where I would maybe, um, you know, like, um, you know, the sermon right after a national tragedy or something, or, you know, a shooting in in our church, I might not need to preach much law that day or a funeral. Um, you know, I can think of examples where the law might not need a whole lot. Um, of, and that has to do with context, though. It does. You know, does. the funeral, just like in the context of the Eucharist, in the context of a funeral, I don't typically have a lot of law in, no. in funeral sermons because the right law is laid out literally right. in front of them. So, yeah. so that is a matter of that is a matter of not whether or not there's enough law, but it's a matter of context because the law, unlike the gospel, the law, um, the law is is revealed to some degree in in nature. Absolutely. No, that's, is, that's great. Romans talk. So, right, so um, how I preach the law, the context of preaching the law and, and sort of those things is a little bit different than the question of uh, how, when, and why do I preach the gospel? Hmm. Interesting. Absol- All right, absolutely. Let's do, let's do yeah. a couple more. This is kind of interesting. All right. All right. Here's another one from Aaron. What do you say to members who listen to your sermon and clearly didn't hear that any of the law was condemning them? 
<laughs> saying, you know, I really wish that so-and-so were here. And and I'm sure glad that you got them on that. Right, right. Uh, well, I'll, so what I'll, do you say to someone? Yeah, yeah I'll, uh, I'll, I'll start this one. And typically what that means to me is that is that uh, the law has not been applied universally. And there is really a – uh, a, a challenge for preachers on making the law specific and universal. And they seem kind of uh, contradictory. I don't think they're contradictory. I think they're paradoxical. And there's a, and there's a difference. Uh, when I'm thinking about preaching law, I am first of all preaching to and against myself. And that, and that if I preach the law in a way that condemns me, then I think that the likelihood that this is going to be universal is higher. If I preach the law in a way that I am not condemned, then I, by definition, know that it is not universal. <laughs> so, uh, so that's kind of how I how I start that question, and and maybe uh, I don't know. I would put it as inductively. You can kind of approach preaching law in two ways: inductively and deductively. Uh, you know, deductively would be. You know, this is this is the whole law. We all break the whole law, and here are specific examples of how you do so. Inductively would be taking a specific sin and driving upward toward how that that points to our universal condemnation. I don't know. Does that? Does, how would you answer that? Yeah, I would. I would probably. I would answer it similarly. You know, and and just. I would also investigate how I'm preaching, making sure that I am, like you said, make sure that I'm preaching. Um, universally, because if someone isn't hearing that it's for them, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because, you know, your job isn't to preach about the sins of the people that aren't there. <laughs> your right. job is to preach about the sins of the people that are there. And if someone, you know, if someone says, well, you know, I, you know, it's not for me, then maybe the preaching isn't being applied universally. It, it, you know, it's also quite possible that that person is just hard-hearted. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, it may uh, be that, that that it is for them and they simply reject it. They simply don't hear it, and um, and there's not a lot you can do. I mean, you can't make people hear and believe. You can't you can't make people repent. And um, what you can do is you can present the, the the word of God, which has the power to do those things. Um, it's a good one. It's a good question. Yeah, one more, and then we'll right. uh, and then we'll uh, call it for this week. All right, this is from uh, uh, my friend Johnald. He's a uh, a pastor in the nearby here. Uh, Discuss common forms of preaching the law that amounts to soft law. What does it look like? Why is it so easy to fall into? How does a pastor check himself against preaching a law without teeth? And how can we preach a law with teeth that still conveys concern for the lost rather than coming off as hyperjudgmental? Though sometimes the unfair judgment against the preacher seems inevitable. Yeah. Well, do you think that that's just the opposite question? You know, that, that, it that is. in this case, he's yeah. not, yeah, the answer here is like, well, we don't, you know, soft law, I understand to be, oh, we're all sinners, you know, we're all, we're all sinful. That's yeah. law, yeah. but it, you know, it doesn't necessarily have the teeth in his words, you know, so. You that's know, a law that to, tries to gum people to death. Yeah, you got to have, you got to have the particular. You got to preach the particular, the particular sin, the particular law. You know, I don't mean that you stand in the pulpit and name names. No, um, you know, or point at yeah, that would be awkward. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be wrong. But um, but you should you should be able to craft a sermon so that uh, you you know that I mean if if people are walking out of your out of your sermons feeling self righteous, 
um, then then you know there's real work to be done there, and the in this and the preaching might need to have more of a of a sharp edge. The the law part it might need to have a more sharp edge and be specific. Be very right. you can be specific about sins um, as long as you don't. The you know again it's a balance right I mean it's a paradox it's t- two things in tension uh, mm-hmm. preaching you don't want to just be so specific that there are people in there say like, well he didn't say anything about my my, my about me so right, there has right. to be the universal too hmm. yeah and um, the judgmental part is an is an interesting one because that kind of gets to in my mind second person third person sometimes when we talk about law. We will we'll say you language, right? Mm-hmm. And then sometimes we'll say we language, first plural, I guess. Um, the preacher does does need to include himself, but yeah. not in a way that draws attention to himself. Mm-hmm. I think that's the and that is really the trick. This is this is why I I think that preachers are on a dangerous footing by using their own sins as examples. <laughs> Right. Oh, yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, I mean, and and, and uh, yeah, you think of it. There is definitely in our culture a sense where preaching the law means sort of telling your story, right? Sure. Of sure. of of your sin, and and you can even point to passages in Paul where it seems like that's what he's doing. Yeah, he does um, do that, right? And 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 so there's there is a there is a fine line there, um, because that can easily turn. And, uh, and, and that can easily turn into boasting about your sin. Even if that isn't your intention, that may be how it's received. So, uh, yeah, and, and a lot of that has to do with highlighting that this is not my will but God's will being delivered. I don't know. It's a good, it's a good question. It's, not an, yeah, it, it's definitely it not an and easy one. And we're always going to wrestle with that. I mean there's no way you're going to preach the law without someone – Having you know misunderstanding or misconstruing or accusing you of being judgmental or being a bigot, you know there's there's always that risk. It happened right. to Jesus, you know, and it'll happen to you. Um, one of my uh, one of my favorite teachers on the distinction of law and gospel is uh, is Dr. Stephen Hine, a longtime professor at Concordia Chicago. Uh, he now uh, he's now uh, partly retired, lives in Colorado, but I remember. Uh, I remember hearing him teach about teach about this and talk about how the law always uh, always drives to either repentance or rejection. That mm-hmm. everyone is going to finally either repent or reject it, mm-hmm. and and that when people reject the law, they are also most likely going to reject the the one that is delivering the law to mm-hmm. them. Sure, sure. So. Hmm. Well, we will. Yeah, definitely, thanks for the questions. Yeah, we will definitely continue this conversation. There are more questions that were uh, uh, that were asked, but I think we got a. Uh, this is kind of a double episode because we missed last week, but uh, we do still need to keep things moving here. Um, so let's. Uh, uh, I, but I, I do think we'll come back to this topic for sure. Let's let's move on a little bit. Uh, we haven't done a, a friend of the show for a while. And uh, the obvious friend of the show for me this week is Higher Things. I don't remember, frankly, if we've done Higher Things before or not. Um, but we certainly are this week. Uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying all of the uh, all of the pictures and comments and everything that I'm seeing on Facebook and Twitter and elsewhere. This is sort of the Higher Things season. 
Uh, last week, Higher Things was in Las Vegas. This week, they're at uh, Calvin College, ironically, in Grand Rapids. I think it's next week or the week after. I think it's next week that they're in Seward, Nebraska, at my alma mater. Uh, and so we have lots and lots of kids that are that are here in the gospel, getting the goods, learning about who who our Lord is and what he's done for them in the context of the Tadam. And uh, I, I, I don't even know where to... How to begin on that uh, on that topic? But uh, I was there with my youth group, and uh, including two of my daughters last last week in Vegas, and it was a it was really a blast. It was a lot of fun. Did you do a presentation? I did. I did my uh, I'll say I did my depression shtick a couple times. Mm-hmm. Um, this is sort of the one hour version of uh, of of depression and the theology of the cross and the gospel. I also preached for one of the services, which was a lot of fun. And uh, I I enjoy that very much, uh, but uh, probably what I enjoyed the most, Scott, was not being in charge. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Um, I totally get it. Yeah, it's uh, it is really nice to be able to go to uh, an event like this, which is just an awesome jolt of Lutheranism, and and to not be running around like crazy trying to keep everything moving and to see all of these people doing great work. So thanks guys. It's uh it's, it's an honor to be there. Appreciate it. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Yeah. So um, let's move on to our, our picks of the week to our, our joy bringers for the week. Um, and uh, I will uh, start with myself for this week. And my pick this week is Apple music. Have you played with Apple music at all yet, Scott? Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. I do know what it is, but I have not really played with it much. All right. Well, this is uh, uh, this is Apple's entry into the streaming music service. That's kind of the short short description of it. So, in some respects, it's like Spotify, or maybe a little bit like Pandora, um, Slacker Radio. Some of, some of these things. Um, it's it, it's definitely a 1.0 or maybe 0.9 um, pro. Uh, product right now, uh, but it has some incredible potential. Uh, some of the things that I really like are that it integrates your library with the streaming services library. So you can make a playlist of stuff that you own and stuff that uh, that you're streaming that that you rent, if you will. Um, and, and that's kind of – and that's pretty cool. It will also uh, – it, it has a lot of great curation stuff. Um, one of the things about uh, Beats Radio, for instance, which is which is the service that uh, that Apple bought a couple of years ago, um, one of the one of the unique features of Beats Radio was human curation. Was that they would have playlists that were developed by actual people, not by an algorithm. You know, Spotify, for instance, does not have human curated playlists. They have algorithms, algorithms. So they'll they'll look at your your listening habits, and then they're going to develop a playlist based on this. Well, uh, Beats Beats went the other direction with that, and Apple is doing, I think, kind of an interesting integration of the human curation and the algorithm stuff. Are you favorite things? Where, but you can also go to uh, go to and hear hear a list that was put together by by an artist or by a DJ. Of you know my favorite songs from the eighties or whatever. So uh, cool. so there's there's cool. some there's some interesting things on it. Um, one of the other features that I am particularly interested in is uh, is that it costs ten dollars a month, but you can have a family plan for fifteen dollars a month, where up to six people on the plan can um, 
uh, and then they can each have their own uh, their own set and their own list of favorites, their own playlists, all this kind of stuff. And for for me, where there are four of us in my family, two more coming up for me. Uh, that is a big deal because right now my playlists on Spotify have an awful lot of Disney and an awful <laughs> lot of Pitch Perfect and some and not nearly as much of the uh, postmodern jukebox sort of stuff that uh, uh, that I tend to listen to right now. Uh, so that I'm intrigued by. We'll see how it's integrated. Right now they're in the middle of a, a three month free trial so you can sign up for apple music right now and i think until the end of september uh, it's free uh and then it'll and then it'll start so i'm enjoying it it'll time will tell if it uh if it sticks or not but uh, just one one example is they have a playlist of uh of of johnny cash uh live recordings which i thoroughly nice. enjoyed and these are recordings that i've never heard before and i'm kind of a johnny wow. cash aficionado too as you are i know uh so they've got lots of fun things like that and uh, there's more but that's what that's what i'm uh, i'm enjoying right now hey so that, it's bringing, that's awesome yeah it's fun it's fun so what's bringing you joy scott well um so i have the last few times i chose a device or, or something other than a book so i'm going to return to a book today and this is a book yeah this is a book and of course it has to do with bioethics and uh, but a particular subset of that topic and it's the title of the book is beyond therapy beyond therapy and the subtitle is biotechnology and the pursuit of happiness and this is put together by uh, the president's council on bioethics under george w bush which was a great outstanding collection of individuals headed by the chairman leon cass and they produced some really good resources during that period and this book this book is really neat because it deals with future medicine and the idea of enhancing human functioning instead of just healing. So, you know, traditionally the, the telos of, heal, of, of medicine was to heal or to restore function. But now we've got with genetic therapies and nanotechnologies, we're talking about being able to improve human functioning, so-called quote-unquote improve human functioning or enhance our capabilities and is this is this a good path or is this the path to destruction and this takes a very very cautious approach but it it does so it's just written so well and it it deals with a lot of really relevant topics i think that a lot of our listeners might find it interesting go on to um, amazon and and look at the table of contents you'll find a lot of things in there that that you might want to actually read about so it's cool. called Beyond Therapy. Very yep. good. We will uh, uh, have all of these things in the show notes. And I think that that, uh, that should uh, conclude our uh, our inaugural re- reintroduction here to the topic of preaching the law. And, uh, and I'm confident that we will come back again soon. Any final words for our listeners, Scott? Nope. It's good to be recording again. And uh, thanks for listening. Yep. Thanks a lot. We'll uh, talk to you guys again soon. Bye.